Welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 22, A History of Violence. Today, we're starting on what eventually turned into this era's big bad, Germany. This is going to be a longer series than France and Britain, as the road taken by the German people up to 1939 was a complicated and miserable one. Rest assured, they did not sleepwalk their way into kicking off a world war. It required a series of social upheavals aligning in just such a way that the most depraved members of humanity found themselves eventually running the show. Now, usually I would caution against condemning an entire nation, especially when taking into account that it's the winners who write history, and Germany was very much a loser in the first half of the 20th century. When you take in the full scope of Germany during the time period we're covering, there really isn't a whole lot of room for excuses for what unfolded. Now, a big problem for why events turned for the absolute worst was the issue of government legitimacy. The country was shattered in World War I, with its traditional leadership totally discredited by the failure. In the aftermath, it never pulled itself back together properly as a society before the Great Depression hit. Because of this failure to find a new kind of stability, Germany and its people turned to ever more extreme solutions and paid a terrible price for it. By 1945, the entire country was nearly destroyed, but not before subjecting countless millions to even worse misery before they could be brought to heel. Just a heads up, I won't be getting quite that far in this series. Instead, I'll continue covering the years up to the Great Depression, which will prove to be the final death blow to Germany's nascent democracy. I say final because there are going to be plenty of hits in the years preceding. These episodes also won't feature Hitler and the Nazis very prominently either. During these years, the Nazis were a minuscule party within a fringe wing of the political scene of the 20s. Their importance in these years was surprisingly minimal given their later, um, popularity among Germans. It didn't have to be this way, though. The reformation of the German nation after the cataclysm of war offered a fragile but real opportunity to reinvent society and change the course of its people's history. That this didn't happen, and instead authoritarianism and militarism were re-embraced, remains a defining tragedy of the past century. To even begin contemplating reforming a nation, though, we need to understand what Germany was before it was laid low in 1918. So I'm going to go back a little ways, and while I promise not to go too far back in time, Germany's issues run kind of deep. You may already be familiar with the German Empire, or the Second Reich as it was sometimes referred to. It was a nation-state born much later in history than, say, France or Britain. This was due to circumstances very similar to Italy, in that regional authorities kept much of their autonomy, meaning that a central government strong enough to unite the German people into one nation never materialized. So, instead of a single government overseeing the whole of the nation, enacting laws binding it ever closer together, Germany was divided among a variety of old noble families. Each of these families controlled their turf with their personal interests in mind. There was no singular capital for the German people to look to, and for a long time the term Germany was more a geographical concept than one that described a particular people or nation. There were Schwabians, Bavarians, Rhenish, Alsatians, Saxons, Pomeranians, Prussians, Austrians, and more, with the groups defining themselves in the context of their individual local identities, rather than as a German nation as a whole. Very similar to Italy. Eventually, this attitude shifted especially going into the 1800s in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. In those days, 
French armies ran roughshod over Germany, and the majority of the little princedoms were helpless to resist. That, and the resistance to the occupation that followed, helped get a modern German identity going. The various German states after those wars would form a confederation to provide themselves a common community and establish some collective security amongst each other. In this confederation, there were two major players. The Austrian Empire under the Habsburg family and the Prussian Kingdom under the Hohenzollerns. The Habsburgs were the oldest and most preeminent of the royal German dynasties. They had been the last emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, or as some later called it, the First Reich, of which Germany had been the core part up until it had been disbanded during the Napoleonic Wars. They were also masters of a vast multicultural empire straddling much of Central Europe, which posed a constant distraction to the emperors in Vienna. This was actually a selling point for many German leaders, especially the ones of the South, who favored a more distant and light-touch leadership that was still capable of deterring outside aggression. Then there were the Hohenzollerns and their kingdom of Prussia. This was a smaller state, and much less multicultural, with really only a large Polish minority in the kingdom. Its territorial base was scattered across northern Germany, but was strongest in the east and the parts of modern Poland it controlled. Its politics were dominated by the Prussian Junkers, a class of landed nobles who voluntarily agreed to assist in empowering the state in exchange for becoming its ruling class. This plan entailed the Junkers keeping vast family estates in the eastern parts of the country, as well as an obligation to form the nation's core of military officers. And as Prussia's standing as a major European power rested on its army, that meant they would lead the state apparatus that received the most attention and prestige. Keep in mind, Prussia is the country that famously had an army that possessed a state. So, you have a noble class that kept a grip on both the traditional source of wealth and power, land, and the most prestigious and powerful institution in the country, the army. For decades, the Prussians and Austrians kept to a partnership in leading Germany that was sometimes easy, sometimes uneasy. That dynamic changed when Otto von Bismarck managed to secure a position of leadership in Prussia. To call Prussia solely an autocracy wouldn't be exactly accurate. It did have a parliament called the Landtag, but it was a terribly restricted one by our standards, always prone to being circumvented by the autocrats. Over time, this created tension among the Landtag. They didn't really like being circumvented, after all. Eventually, they moved to assert themselves over the army, and ergo the Junkers, by refusing to pass a new army budget the king was pushing for. For modern listeners, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the man who would eventually pave the way to the German Empire came to power due to a crisis over defense spending. That would be Bismarck master of negotiations, and mustaches. It would be his political acumen that would get the bill through and secure his place as both the king's right-hand man and a close ally of the military establishment. He accepted a position as both prime minister and foreign minister and started to lead Prussia down the road to unification. Though how much of that he had planned versus what he was just being opportunistic about is a matter of no small debate. Under the guidance from his allies within the military, the Prussian army was overhauled to be the most formidable in Europe, and seeing as how it would be a shame to let that reform go to waste by not doing anything with it, he embarked on a series of three wars. The first was against Denmark, which, given that he deliberately brought the Austrians in as partners as a show of German cooperation, might not be seen as terribly sporting. 
The Danes had annexed a fragment of German territory on its border that it had kept a centuries-long interest in, and which Bismarck used to whip Germans into a hysteria over foreign annexations. The Germans won, of course, and the Prussians and Austrians jointly administered the recovered region. Bismarck then deliberately fanned tensions between Prussia and Austria, which led to a war between them. Austria also lost to Prussia, which robbed them of their leadership position in the German Confederation. It was now Prussia and its army that was the power in Germany. This culminated in 1870, when Bismarck again engineered a war, this time with France. This round of war would be very different, as the whole of the German Confederation was called into the fight. I touched on this war already in the French intro, so long story short, Prussia and the other Germans won big, decisively crushing France in the process. Two things happened as a result. One, the King of Prussia was able to unify the other German states officially under his leadership as Kaiser of the new German Empire, and two, Germany gained Alsace-Lorraine, a strip of land on the borderlands between Germany and France. This last bit would be a poison chalice, as it turned France into the vengeful enemy that we covered in the French episodes. All of these victories also solidified the army as the preeminent national institution. It was the vehicle by which the German nation came together as a unified force to be respected, and even feared, especially in those early decades, as the various German states only gradually assimilated into one community, it was the armed forces that would be a genuinely national institution that everyone could identify with. Johann Schmo over in Frankfurt might not care for his new Kaiser in Berlin, but if he had a brother in the National Army, or if he served himself, then he had some connection to this new Germany. So, the point I'm trying to get across is that the German nation stood unified owing to the feats of its army, which was a profoundly psychological thing that predisposed Germany to militarism. It really, really didn't hurt, though, that those three wars that led to unification were all short, and it was only the last one against France that was notably bloody. Germany didn't lose its fractious character in the years between unification and World War I, though. The land tag of Prussia was upgraded to a full Reichstag, and now representatives from the entire nation would legislate from Berlin. For most of this time, you had your typical conservatives in the Junkers and other nobles fighting to keep their autocratic privileges, and your liberals who were more concerned with expanding economic freedoms and some civil rights. These were also decades of intense industrialization in Germany. You may remember the Ruhr Valley in previous episodes. It was and is a heavily industrialized region of northwest Germany that was one of the most notable success stories during this time. Going into the latter half of the 1800s, it experienced huge economic growth, thanks in no small part to the huge indemnity that was imposed on France after 1871. The money extracted during wartime was reinvested by Germany into its internal development, and this hopefully sheds some new light on France's obsession with extracting reparations from Germany after 1918. Anyway, the nation was flush with money, and investments were made in heavy industries. And over the course of decades, the empire became the second greatest industrial power on the planet, only behind the much larger United States. A lesser-known characteristic of this industrialization, though, is that it was spread out geographically, even in places like the Ruhr. In other countries, like, say, the Skoda Metalworks in Pleasant or the textile plants of Manchester, they were clustered in a single town. Instead, 
manufacturing centers for all sorts of industries were scattered across Germany. In the Ruhr Valley, for instance, towns only a handful of miles away from each other all supported their own steel plants. They weren't centralized in just one place. Because workers in those factories were much less concentrated, they were exposed to middle-class opinions and pressures more than the proletariat of other countries. If you're poor, it's easy to stick to the slums of London or Manchester and only encounter people of your own social status. In Germany, the communities were smaller and more fragmented, so many unskilled or semi-skilled workers lived in much closer proximity to the bourgeois. The alienation of classes was therefore less pronounced on average in Germany than elsewhere. Additionally, in industrialized countries, proletariat would normally become aggrieved with their working conditions and quality of life and start drifting towards a socialist ideology. Most other nations did not have a leader as shrewd as Bismarck, though. Once his warring days were done, he set about trying to secure Germany, and part of that was insulating it from the rising specter of socialism. He was able to see the popularity of social programs espoused by the increasingly large Social Democratic Party, or the SPD for short, and resolved to head them off. That political party grew into one of the largest and most influential socialist parties in the world at the time. Although it is important to note the Social Democratic qualifier in the title, and much of the party was more center-left than left, which is going to be very important in a bit. That being said, it was still seen as the biggest threat to traditional power centers in Germany. Over the course of a decade, Bismarck introduced laws that became the first social welfare laws of Germany. These provided health care, disability benefits, and old-age pensions, similar to Social Security here in the States. All of this didn't stop the labor movement from growing in popularity, though. The SPD membership kept expanding all the way up to 1914. What it did do was help alleviate class friction to a degree in the empire, and prevent the widespread alienation of the working class. The workers of Germany were well aware that the average Junker looked down on them but at least some in the conservative establishment were giving them something. Workers in Germany were always eager to advance their rights and benefits, but compared to other nations, they lacked the more desperate spirit of their proletarian counterparts. Always keep in mind the willingness to engage in revolutionary, or even just confrontational action, is easier when you don't have a whole lot to lose. And the German workers did see their conditions improve, to the level where many would at least have second thoughts about agitating for radical change. And just as war helped spark an early boom in Germany, it was going to prove to be its downfall. In 1914, World War I broke out for a depressingly long list of reasons. At first, it was a massive source of unity for Germany. Millions of soldiers were mobilized, and the nation turned to the hard work of winning the war quickly. People cheer the departing conquerors, with euphoric crowds waving them good luck and sticking it to the French and Russians. And the Reichstag was posed with the task of funding the war. Everyone thought it'd be over in six months or so, and the hysteria was so strong that even the SPD got caught up in it. This is significant, because the SPD is ostensibly the Socialist Party, a Marxist party, the group that pushes an internationalist and pacifist attitude. All of these wars were supposed to be just emperors and kings pecking at each other over colonies and specks of land. That the SPD supported the war full tilt should be taken as an indicator that the socialist movement in Germany 
hadn't really developed the character it claimed to have, which is important to explain its docile nature during and after the war. Much of the international socialist movement was furious at the SPD throwing in with the Kaiser and showing near-unanimous support for the war, with Lenin seeing their enthusiasm as a great historical betrayal. There was a single exception in the Reichstag, though, a man named Karl Liebknecht. An SPD representative, he initially abstained from voting for war loans, but by December 1914 decided to take a stand and publicly refused to vote for more funding. He was the only representative in the Reichstag to do so. He partnered with another Marxist thinker, Rosa Luxemburg, to create an anti-war faction in Imperial Germany. Luxemburg was from the section of Poland owned by the Russian Empire, and had settled in Germany to avoid the authorities there. She became a prominent voice on the German left, and is still regarded today as one of the greats in the Marxist pantheon. She was a committed revolutionary and vocal critic of the centrist wing of the SPD as well. The state did not take kindly to the pair's anti-war point of view, though, and by the start of 1915, Luxembourg was in prison, and the 43-year-old Leibnacht was conscripted into the army and sent east to dig graves. The authorities probably thought that'd be the end of high-profile dissent. But a funny thing happened that the authorities did not expect. The war kept going. And as the war kept going, the toll rose still higher. There was the terrible body count, the news of husbands and sons not ever coming back home. Even after only a half-year of a four-year war, the effects started to show. The people had turned grim, and they were looking for answers as to why exactly they were suffering and their loved ones were dying. And if you went over World War I in school, you know about the resource shortages that Germany suffered at the home front, and it was the deciding factor in their eventual collapse. Foodstuffs became scarce due to the Entente naval blockade, and in the winter of 1916-1917, the, the civilian population endured the turnip winter. It was pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Damp conditions in the fall rotted away food stores, and the primary source of food became the noble turnip. Turns out, you can make bread from turnips if you're desperate enough to try anything. So, general rationing turned into general starvation. This was also a time of high-handed authoritarian measures being imposed on the nation. People expected conditions to be different during the war, but as it dragged on inconclusively, this turned into something else entirely. During August of 1916, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg took command of the German army, along with his second-in-command, the Quartermaster General, Eric Ludendorff. Hindenburg was the face of the pair, a conservative Junker, who struck a very imposing and very square figure. He was the model of an accomplished warlord and a scion of the old order. Ludendorff, for his part, was an accomplished soldier and definitely the more active mind between the two. However, upon reaching higher command and gaining more autonomy, he started grasping for ever more power. This probably should have been seen coming after his tenure on the Eastern Front, where he established an experimental military administration for the purpose of maximizing extracted resources. In effect, he created his own private kingdom out of occupied Lithuania and northeast Poland. Once the pair were placed in charge of the German army, Ludendorff also pushed to gain control of the entire German war effort. The two were effectively pushing the Kaiser to accept them as military dictators of Germany. And desperate for wins, the Kaiser agreed. Ludendorff wasted no time in reorganizing the war effort. Factories were consolidated into larger and fewer facilities with more automation. 
Earlier, I brought up a limiting factor to German workers' movements, being the smaller size and larger geographic distribution of the factories. Ludendorff was tearing down those boundaries and cramming ever larger bodies of workers together. Hungry, disillusioned workers, operating side by side, around the clock. And again, the whole reason that German workers didn't push too hard against the state was because their material circumstances were better than elsewhere, and pre-war trends indicated they would only get better. Now they were all miserable together, and the relative prosperity they labored for previously had been gone for years at this point. The enemy had been France, and especially Russia, but now it was the oppressive overlords in the imperial state and business class that ran its war effort. The mainstream of the SPD, though, was not willing to throw in with any anti-war efforts. In December of 1915, many of its representatives voted against another round of war loans. This caused the party leadership to throw them out in March 1916. By January 1917, they reorganized as the Independent Social Democratic Party, or the USPD. At this point, for those keeping track, the SPD represents the political center-left, while the USPD took up the mantle of traditional socialism. Of course, the conservatives made no distinction between either and saw them all as a pack of Marxists. Just something to keep in mind for future reference. In April 1917, still a year and a half from the end of the war, 200,000 metal workers went on strike in the first big disturbance over food rations. This was broken up, but people got talking. Very soon, the deprivations of war started to be linked with political action. By this time, Luxembourg was back on the streets and ready to agitate. Together with fellow leftist associates, she formed the Spartacists League, a full-blown revolutionary Marxist organization that drew inspiration from the recent success of the Bolsheviks in Russia. It would be aligned with the USPD and formed its left wing. In January 1918, they started openly spreading pamphlets calling for a general strike. This was answered on January 28th, with over a half million workers going on strike, with it eventually spreading to major cities all across Germany. Conspicuously on the sidelines was the SPD proper. They still clung to a pro-war outlook, and an emerging leader in that party, a man named Friedrich Ebert, even went so far as to join the leadership of the strikers for the sole purpose of convincing them to end the strikes and just go back to work. Authorities swooped in and broke up the strike on the 31st, but emotions were raw, and nothing had been solved. It was only going to get worse for the imperial authorities from here. That being said, a problem was presenting itself for the workers during these mass strikes. There really wasn't anyone in charge. They certainly had unions and they acted as a group, but they lacked direction and clear-cut goals. The workers mostly wanted their material conditions to improve, which is to say they wanted food. Not a big ask normally, but due to the war, there really wasn't any food. Sure, the very upper classes still had access to luxuries, and oh boy, they were not secretive about it. But even if seized, it wouldn't be enough to feed the nation. The war would have to end. And that complicated things, because if you called for the war to end, then people might think you're being unpatriotic, even if in reality, all it means is you'd like some 1,500 calorie days a week. Some of the workers wanted to push for greater workers' rights in the bargain, although this deferred from worker to worker, and many were careful not to be branded as 
overly socialist. Union leaders were typically more conservative than the workers they represented, but had to play a delicate game so as not to alienate their base. It was a difficult needle to thread. The political factions were not much better off. The USPD was itself divided between right and left factions. Those on the right primarily wanted an end to the war and enact base reforms, not too dissimilar from the main SPD. The left faction was primarily the Spartacus League under Luxembourg and Leibniz. Then there was a separate Marxist organization called the Left Radicals that was also revolutionary, but thought the Spartacists were sellouts for sticking with the USPD. I've said it a lot so far, but left-wing politics are always depressingly fragmented. So yeah, there was no clear leader and no established organization to draw from. Luxembourg and Leibniz were no Lenin and Trotsky, and they knew it. The imperial authorities might have been able to survive the brewing crisis at home, if only they were able to resolve the war abroad favorably. By early 1918, though, that was borderline impossible. And regardless of how ready everyone was, the old order was going bye-bye. Join me next week as we cover the final days of Imperial Germany and the outbreak of revolution. As always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 